Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's a sports casting cliche to joke that the superior team has the inferior team right where they want them, even though the superior team is losing late in the game. Never count out God's kingdom. Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series, The Book of Acts, Growth Against All Odds, with this sermon entitled, The Kingdom That Overcomes, which covers Acts chapter 6, verse 8, to chapter 8, verse 3. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Great, great time of uh, worship here today, and uh, man, it's exciting to me to... Uh... See, I wish you could already see how the songs that we sung today and things we've said uh, just interface so great with the message we have coming here today. Always a blessing uh, to be ministered to by these people behind me here. In case uh, you're new here, let me introduce uh, myself. My name's Bob Cargo. My main role here at the church is to oversee our efforts in church planting, that is starting new churches around Atlanta and all over North Georgia. The second church that I was part of planting as a pastor and had a role in doing so was in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, that's the home of Ole Miss. I didn't grow up as an Ole Miss rebel, but I learned to say go rebels uh, during my time in Oxford. And it was fun planting a church in a college town. All kind of things uh, would happen. One guy uh, sort of halfway seriously said, the name of our church ought to be Rebel Presbyterian. <laughs> uh, well, that plays well to the Ole Miss Rebels, but not so theologically correct. So we'll pass all that. And we were meeting for worship at a Ramada Inn and somebody said, let's be the first church for the Ramada Inn. I don't, I'm not going for that either. Uh, one of the great things about ministry there was that we had a lot of college students that attended our church. And the reason was we had some of the campus ministers on campus that attended our church and they tended to bring their students with them. A couple of those people in campus ministry, their ministries were thriving, thriving, just going great. There was one particular fellow though by the name of Bill and his ministry was really, really struggling, hardly anybody involved and he was very discouraged. Uh, he came to see me one day uh, as his pastor and he was, just felt like quitting, very discouraged about the whole thing. And uh, later, I'll tell you that uh, not long after that, really through no counsel of mine, but he changed his focus to start ministering to international students, and he's still there decades later having a thriving ministry at Ole Miss among international students. But one of the things that Bill said to me that is stuck in my heart and in my head for all these years, and I've never forgotten it, I could remember it as if it were a month ago instead of uh, several decades ago. Uh, he said, Bob, I don't know what's gonna happen here, but I do know this. I would rather fail in a cause that ultimately succeeds than succeed in a cause that ultimately fails. That's a great insight. I would rather fail in a cause that ultimately succeeds than succeed in a cause that ultimately fails. I think that reflects the heart of every person here. I wanna be part of something that ultimately succeeds. I want to know that what I'm doing matters forever. And the purpose of our series here in the book of Acts is to tell you that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of something that ultimately succeeds. You are part of something that matters forever. It's the kingdom of Jesus. The title of today's message is The Kingdom That Overcomes. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of that kingdom. There are two ideas that we wanna anchor our message in today, and you'll see them on the screen. The first is this, apart from God's renewing work, human hearts resist the gospel of Jesus and always have, even killing the righteous one. But, but, man's resistance cannot stop God's redemptive purpose in Jesus, his kingdom 
always overcomes. I've been asked to take a really Acts 6, chapter 6 and 7, and the first part of chapter 8. So a big chunk of Acts. So we're not going to read all of it, but I do want to give you a preview of where we're going. First of all, we are going to talk about the text. Not going to read it all, but we are going to read a couple of lengthy parts. And like Jeff has been doing lately, we'll read a little bit and talk a little bit. It centers on a man named Stephen. Then after examining the text, we want to talk about our greater danger. Uh, the believers here in Acts were in danger. I believe that we here today are in a greater danger than they were. And then lastly, number three, we want to look at three gospel promises. Three gospel promises that come to the followers of Jesus that give us comfort and encouragement and joy no matter what our environment is around us. So that's where we're headed. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. Lord, we do thank you that, uh, that we're talking today about King Jesus and his kingdom. Pray that you would come crashing into our hearts about the kingdoms in our hearts, in our minds that rival the kingdom of Jesus. And you would make us very sensitive to turn away from those kingdoms to the rightful king. Lord, I pray that you would forgive the sins of the one who stands here to deliver this message today. Those sins are many. I pray that we would, by your spirit and by your word, be drawn to see Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. What do we see in this text? We're gonna see a remarkable man who preached a remarkable message about a remarkable gospel, and there was a remarkable result. First of all, consider this remarkable man, Stephen. Start in verse eight of chapter six. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Let me just stop and make some comments. Before we even get to this verse, in the first several verses of this chapter, we, we see Stephen being introduced. He's called there a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom and full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was one of several men who were chosen to resolve a problem in the church. The widows that were being overlooked in the distribution of food that would help them and the widows that were from a Hellenistic, that is a Greek cultural background, were being overlooked. And so the church of Jesus already had cultural and ethnic tension in it. And Stephen was one of those people that helped resolve that. But he was much more than a proto-deacon that helped distribute food to widows. He was an evangelist. He was a preacher. He was a teacher. God was doing miraculous and wonderful things in him and through him. Quite a remarkable man. We continue the story in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, again, those from a Greek background, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, some of the Jewish leaders. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and then they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Something supernatural was happening. And then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And with that, this remarkable man launches into preaching a remarkable message. It's much too long for us to read it to you, but let me summarize it. 
Basically, Stephen rehearses and reviews the whole history of the nation of Israel. He talks about Abraham. He talks a lot about Moses and the exodus out of Egypt. He talks about the prophets, and he reviews all of that history. And he does so as a way of bringing their attention to two themes. The first theme is this, that human hearts always resist the gospel, the good news of Christ and of his salvation by grace. The history of Israel, even though they were the chosen people of God, is that their hearts have resisted the message of God and the messengers of God. And the reason is, I think implicitly, the second theme is, is because it slays our pride. It's a humbling thing to, to believe. My only hope of being made right with God, my only hope of having the broken places of my heart fixed and of all things being made right, my only hope is grace, just absolute unmerited favor. And even if we like sort of an amorphous idea of grace, to think that I need a particular person who has been my savior, who's had to die a gruesome death in my place, we don't like that. And so though this is good news, our hearts are as resistant to this good news as a small child is resistant to take the medicine that would make her well. Honey, take this, you'll feel better. And she turns away because she doesn't know how good it is. We're as resistant as a child is that would resist going to the beach because he's never been to the beach and all he knows is he's been told, you're gonna be sitting in your car seat for a long time. And he says, no way. It's good news to go to the beach, but he doesn't know that. It's good news to take medicine that will heal you, but she doesn't know that. Our hearts are resistant to this good news. It's remarkable news, but it's good news. This remarkable news, this remarkable message that is preached here by Stephen points to a remarkable gospel. Look at verse 48 of chapter 7. Verse 48. Toward the end of his sermon, he says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And then Stephen changes his tone. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you've not obeyed it. Now, where do we see the gospel in Stephen's sermon? Well, earlier here, you might remember that Stephen was being accused of saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and destroy the, temp destroy the traditions that were handed down from Moses. Now, Stephen probably didn't say it just that way. But the people that heard Stephen were smart enough to put two and two together and get four. Because Stephen was saying all the sacrifices of the temple and the temple itself were just pointing forward to the coming suffering servant Messiah. And that suffering servant Messiah has come, Jesus, and he has died in our place and he has been raised and the temple is now the people of God. And they put two and two together. <laughs> if Jesus has come, the sacrifices aren't needed and the temple's not needed and these guys made their living with all of that. Their jobs were being threatened, their traditions were being threatened and so they pushed back against him because he was proclaiming a gospel that was not in line with their misunderstandings of the work of God. And on top of that, salvation had always been by grace alone, it had always come through faith alone but they had twisted it 
into a religion of works righteousness, that we become right with God based upon our keeping of the law and our observance of all of these ceremonies. Around here in our church, we talk a lot about the gospel, don't we? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? It is simply this, the being made right with God, being reconciled to God, being forgiven of our sins, things being made right in our hearts and someday all around us. It is by grace alone, and it is through Christ alone, and it is through faith alone. It results in good deeds, but it's not based upon our good deeds. And the grace of God doesn't come to us through our good deeds. It is that Christ has been the perfect one who lived the life I couldn't live and died a death I deserved to die and has been raised to newness of life so that I can have newness of life. That is the good news of the gospel. If you've never received that good news, we hope you will today. Now, you may, however, find that your heart is resistant against it. And I would guess if you find your heart resistant against it, it's because indeed it is so humbling to believe. It's only by grace and it's only through the work of Jesus. But in your heart of hearts, don't you know that you need this good news? A remarkable man who preached a remarkable message about a remarkable gospel. And we also see in this story a remarkable result. Look at verse 54 of chapter seven, okay? There we see what happens after he finishes preaching. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I don't think this was a vision. I think God pulled back the curtain between heaven and earth and Stephen could see what was actually happening. He said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, that is, he died. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Here's a key verse the hinge of church history. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. A remarkable result. What is this remarkable result? Here it is. The remarkable result is that at the very moment this seemed the darkest hour, at the precise moment that things seemed to be going the worst, things were going great because God was forcing these believers, these followers of Jesus to spread the gospel everywhere else. You see, Jesus has said, go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, and they had not been obedient. Things were so great in Jerusalem, but just stay here. We get to hear the apostles preach, great things are going, it's great fun. I mean, there's a little bit of pushback. Our, our apostles have been imprisoned a couple of times, but it's just them, it's not the rest of us. It's great being here. But now Stephen, not even one of the apostles, now Stephen is murdered because of his faith. He becomes a martyr and everything changes. It looks so very, very dark, but I would have you know this, at the time that seemed the darkest, it was actually the brightest. The gospel was actually spreading it was not being held back. It was not being destroyed. The great commission was being fulfilled. And this was a remarkable result 
of a time that seemed so very, very hard. If I might put it this way, these people were in danger, but the gospel was not in danger. The gospel was being spread. And in this time, Stephen himself alludes to the fact that the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom that will reign over every other kingdom and it will reign forever. In his vision of heaven, in his view of heaven, what does he say? I see one like a son of man, like the son of man. He's referring there to an Old, Test Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And here it is in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven. That was weird. And he approached the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and was led into his presence. And he, that is the son of man, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here was the remarkable result. It brought them face to face with the fact that king, the kingdom of Jesus will last forever. His is the kingdom that will never pass away. He indeed is the son of man. And you might be in danger but the gospel is not in danger. That's the story of this text. Now, how does that apply to you and to me today? These people were in danger, but I want to put forth to you today that I believe that we in 2020 in Johns Creek, Georgia, we are in greater danger. What indeed is our greater danger? Uh, let me tell you what our greater danger is. Our greater danger is not a violent frontal assault of people being put in prison and people being physically harmed and be, being, be people being put to death because of their faith in Jesus. Our greater danger is to have an insipid faith. Our greater danger is to have a watered down version of Christianity. Our greatest danger is a nominal faith, a compromised expression of half-baked Christianity. Our greatest danger is a version of Christianity that is part biblical Christianity mixed with equal parts of pursuing the American dream. That, my friends, is our greatest danger. As I thought about this message in the whole series in Acts, and I thought about how these followers of Jesus were actively persecuted and resisted by those who had governmental authority and religious authority and cultural authority and power, I thought about our circumstances I thought about what has happened in the last 40 or 50 years here in America and what's going on around the world. And I decided to review the writings of, of two people that were very prophetic. One was Dr. Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was an American missionary to Europe back in the 1960s. He was a philosopher as well as a theologian, and he was a great defender of the Christian faith toward those who would say, oh, Christianity is just not true. And he wrote amazing insights about the American culture as well as the European culture. One of the greatest books he read or wrote was uh, How Should We Then Live? Then I also began to review some of the writings of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was part of the Nixon White House. He was part of the Watergate cover-up and he went to prison for that. But between Watergate, the event, and his going to prison, he was converted. And when he came out of prison, he formed Prison Fellowship, a ministry that ministers to prisoners both guilty and innocent, and to their families. And as I began in the last few weeks reviewing the writings of these men, I will just have to tell you, I was shocked 
at their prophetic insights into 2020, the things that they had to say that we need to hear today. Uh, let me give you some readings, and I know that here I'm the king of long readings, okay? I'm, I'm aware of that. Long quotes, long readings, and these are going to be long even by Bob Cargo standards. But I got to tell you, the insights of Francis Schaeffer and Chuck Colson, these are some things we need to hear today. When Francis Schaeffer was describing the American culture of the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, this is what he said. The majority of people in America at that time adopted two impoverished values, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace means just to be let alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city. To live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what the results will be in the lifetimes of my children and my grandchildren. Affluence means an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity, a life made up of things, things, and more things, a success judged by an ever-higher level of material abundance. In other words, uh, Francis Schaeffer was saying, you might be thinking that the American culture was shaped by Christian values. It was not. It was shaped by these two impoverished values, personal peace and affluence. They reign supreme. Schaefer continues, he says, after the turmoil of the 60s, many people thought it was much better when the universities quieted down in the early 70s. I could have wept. The young people have been right in their analysis, though wrong in their solutions. How much worse when many of them gave up hope and simply accepted the same values as their parents, personal peace and affluence. Now, drugs remain, but only in parallel to the older generation's alcohol. And an excessive use of alcohol has become a problem among young people as well. Promiscuous sex and bisexuality remain, old language, but only in parallel to the older generation's adultery. In other words, as the young people revolted against their parents, they came around in a big circle and often ended an inch lower with only the same two impoverished values, their own kind of personal peace and their own kind of affluence. In other words, Schaefer was saying at that time, American Christians, you're afraid that liberalism is taking over your culture and you wanna go back. He said, no, there, there's nothing to go back to. What was back there was not a Christian culture. What was back there was a culture that was ruled by personal peace and affluence. The path forward is to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus. One of the other things that Schaefer said was this, one of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is to ask them to be conservative. Christianity is not conservative, but revolutionary. Dr. Tim Keller has put it this way, the gospel is a third way. It is neither culturally liberal nor culturally conservative. It is neither. It is something altogether different. My friends, if we're faithful to the kingdom of Jesus, then we must say, I will reject cultural liberalism and cultural conservatism because my kingdom is like neither of those, really. My kingdom stands above the other two. My kingdom judges the other two, and my king judges the other two. And what is right will be affirmed, and what is wrong will be condemned. But the kingdom of Jesus gives us a third way. Wow, what great insights by Francis Schaeffer. Chuck Colson, in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, is out of print now, but reprinted with the title, God and Government. 
His words, I think, are perhaps even more stunning. This is the way Colson has put it. He said, Christian values are in retreat in the West today primarily, I believe, because of the church itself. If Christianity has failed to stem the rising tides of relativism, it is because the church in many instances has lost the convicting force of the gospel message. Early we argued that humanists did not understand humans and Christians did not understand Christianity. My friends, that's a terrific insight. Humanists do not understand humans and most Christians have not understood Christianity. This is surely evident in post-World War II Christianity, which has become a religion of private comfort and blessing that fills up whatever small holes in life that pleasure, money, and success have left open, what Bonhoeffer called a God of the gaps. And what he said 35 years ago, I think, is even more true today. And then bear with me with one more thing from Colson. It's too important to leave out. It tells us what we need to be doing and what we don't need to be doing. Colson says, the apostle Paul said, my power is made perfect in weakness and concluded when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And throughout the scripture, God reveals a special compassion for the powerless, widows, orphans, prisoners, and aliens. Though the message of the kingdom of God offers salvation for all who repent and believe, God does not conceal his disdain for those so enamored of their own power that they refuse to worship him or to acknowledge his delight in the humble a culture that exalts power and celebrity, that worships success, dismisses such words as nonsense. Strong individuals rely on their own resources, which will never ultimately speaking be enough, but the so-called weak person knows his or her own limits and needs, and thus depends wholly upon God. This series is about the growth of the church against all odds, but to be honest, doesn't it often seem that the church is losing and not winning? Doesn't it often seem that the gospel is being beaten back? What in the world is God doing? God is at work. The locus of power of missional thrust has always shifted. It went from Jerusalem to Rome, and it went from Rome to Northern Europe, and from Northern Europe to Western Europe, to Great Britain and to America. And some of you may be saying, but it seems to be tottering here. Let me tell you what God is doing. The church is exploding in the southern hemisphere of the world. Millions of people are pouring into the kingdom in Africa and in Asia and in South America. It's the powerful work of the Spirit. And in place after place, Christians are being persecuted. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the gospel is spreading like crazy so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation are there in that last great day. That's what's happening. What's happening here in North America? I'll tell you what's happening in North America. The immigrant church is reviving the North American church. People are coming from here from all over the world and wonderful things are happening. People are here bringing the, the Christ with them and they're, they're coming here and they're being converted and God is on the move. And as Dr. Tim Keller has observed, the gospel only seems to be in recession among those who are European and of European descent. So what is God doing for us as majority culture people in America? Here's my opinion. Jesus is purifying his church. Jesus is cleansing his church. He is taking us away from a time in which people found it beneficial to pretend to be a Christian and to say that they're following Jesus when they are not. And the most important thing that could happen to the majority culture church in America 
is that we would be purified to look like Jesus, not that we would be powerful, not that we would be in control. Colson has said one other thing that is stunning, but I think he's correct. He has said this, when the church is not being persecuted, it is being corrupted. I'm not eager to be persecuted, I'm not. And it's right for Christians to be involved in politics and in government and in education and in business and in all of those things that help to shape our culture. But when we do it, we do it for the benefit of all people. We do it for the common good. And here's the truth. We're involved with those things, yes. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has power when it's the church. The church of the gospel of grace has power when it was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. We have power as the church when we are the church. And here's the hard reality. Whenever the church has wed itself to human institutions of power, the church has been corrupted and the gospel has been lost. We dare not make that mistake in our future. We are to be the church We'll be faithful to Jesus and not trust in any human institution. I don't know what's in front of us in America, but I do know this. The gospel will spread. God's kingdom will win. And we're going to be okay. There's the text. It points us to the gospel. It points to these people who were in danger, but the gospel was not in danger. And there is our greater danger, not the greater danger of active persecution, the danger of a corrupted, compromised faith because we've mixed it with either conservative or liberal American culture. Faithful to Jesus. Let's end very quickly with these things. Three gospel promises that should give you joy and comfort and encouragement no matter your circumstance. First of all is this. We see it in the passage that God receives the rejected. That's what happened to Stephen. God receives the rejected. And in his sermon, he says, that's been true throughout the history of the church. You can reject the people of God, but God receives them. Here, when, when Stephen looks into heaven and the, and the curtain is pulled back and he sees what's actually happening, this is the only time it is said that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, not sitting and standing. And it's the picture that the judge has gotten up from the judgment seat and he's come around from the bench and now he is the defense attorney. Jesus is Stephen's defense attorney to defend him, to cheer him on, and then to welcome him into his presence. My friend, are you being reviled and rejected and mocked and made fun of? Are you being put outside, so to speak, relationally? Maybe in your family, maybe where you work, maybe at your school. You feel that you are paying the cost of being a follower of Jesus because of the rejection of other people. I want you to focus on this. God, your Father, receives you. He receives you, he loves you, he embraces you. Focus on his reception of you and his love for you. That's the relationship that counts. Let all other things fade away. Number two, not only does he receive the rejected, he raises up the received. Here when Stephen is being killed, what does he say? Lord, don't count these sins against them and, and receive my spirit. Who does that make you think of? Stephen basically is saying the very same things that Jesus said when Jesus was being crucified. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so Stephen one day will be raised from the dead. And for you and I, 
If we have been received through the grace of Jesus by God the Father, one day we will be raised up. I love the part of the Apostles' Creed where we say, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection. My friends, you will become discouraged. You will want to give up. You will think that the gospel is losing unless you believe in the resurrection. Remember the end of the story. He receives the rejected. He raises up those he receives. And then thirdly, he redeems the resistant. Here we, we, we pivot from looking at Stephen to looking at another player in the story, Saul. Look at verse 58 of chapter 7. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Of course, this Saul of Tarsus, a chapter or two later in the book of Acts, the risen Christ confronts him as he is headed to Damascus to imprison and murder Christians. And Saul of Tarsus becomes the apostle Paul. He redeems the resistant. And my friends, that's your story and that's my story. Apart from the gospel of grace, this is who we are. There are a couple of close brothers of mine in, in Christ. We began to follow Christ together when we were still teenagers. We get together even today on a regular basis, once or twice a year. Back when we were in college, we gathered at the home of one of these two guys, and I remember as we shared with one another, one of the three said, God's been giving me insights about the sinfulness of my heart. I've realized that if I could get my hands on God, I would kill him. And our eyes sort of opened up. And he said, but isn't that just what we as human beings did when we could get our hands on God? My friends, that is the story of every convert. We would kill God if we could. We are as resistant to the gospel as Saul of Tarsus. But the good news is, when we were his enemies, he died for the ungodly. My story is he redeems the resistant this is how every story begins. He redeems the resistant. Right now, our story is that he receives those that have been redeemed. And someday, it will be true that he will raise up those whom he has received. Let me end with this. Where do we find the power for this? <laughs> the power not to conform to the culture of today, nor to be conformed to the culture of 30 years ago. What does it take to have the power to stand against those that stand against the gospel, to speak up and share the gospel when I know I may be mocked, when I may be relationally rejected? Here's where the power lies. It relies in the blood of Jesus Christ. At the end of time in Revelation 12, the apostle John has a vision, and this is it. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, his Christ, Jesus. For the accuser of our brothers, brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down and they overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. My friends, there is power in the cross. There's power for obedience. There is power for holiness. There is power to speak up and be a witness. There is power not to be compromised and not to conform to the culture of the past nor the culture of the present, but to live out the third way of the gospel in word and in deed. And the power is found in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a brother here on our staff that always, when I preach, he says, Bob, what's going to be our takeaways? 
What's going to be our takeaways? I'm glad he always asked me. Here are the takeaways from today. First of all is fear not. Don't be afraid. I don't know what's going to happen in our culture in the future. Do not be surprised if the gospel is resisted more in the future than it ever has been in the past. Do not be dismayed and do not be afraid. God is perfectly in control and the gospel is not in danger. And we will simply be joining 95% of the followers of Jesus around the world and through church history. And we'll experience what they've experienced, but we shall never be afraid. Number two is this, do not trust in princes or kings. Do not look to any earthly institution to save us, to get us out of this mess. Don't believe in any earthly institution to make our country, our culture, what it needs to be. From first to last, we are told, never trust in princes or in kings. Third is this, be the church. Faithful to Jesus in word and deed and attitude. I believe with all of my heart that we can stand out and be different from everybody else in our culture by living out a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like servanthood, and a Christ-like boldness to tell the story. We need the grace of God. We think everybody does. Be faithful to Jesus. And last is this, remember the end of the story and trust in the cross of Christ. I would give up if I didn't know the end of the story. But the end of the story is that Jesus wins. And when Jesus wins, we win. And he wins. And we win. Because almost 2,000 years ago, his blood was shed on a cross. And because of that shed blood, his victory is our victory. And his kingdom is going to last forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that yours is the kingdom that never ends. Yours is the kingdom of light. And Lord, we ask you today that you would lead us to come face to face with the kingdoms inside our own little lives and our own little hearts that we're clinging to so desperately. Give us the good news that if we will let go of that little kingdom in my heart, I can enjoy a kingdom that will last forever. And oh Lord, may our allegiance to the King of Kings, to the kingdom of Christ, be greater than our allegiance to any earthly kingdom, any earthly culture, any earthly country, that we would know that we bless all others around us more by giving our high allegiance, our highest allegiance to King Jesus alone. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.